I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you all to the London Review Bookstore discussion of Vron Ware's book, Return of a Native. Notice the beautiful cover painted by the author. It has a whole other life as a painter, so you'll have to take note of that. But before we actually start the discussion, I just wanted to talk about the place from which I speak. I recognize the Mohegan, Mashantucket, Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Gagatuck, my apologies, Golden Hill Pogusset, Niantic, the Quinnipiac and other Algonquin-speaking peoples from whose traditional territory I'm speaking to you in what is now known as the state of Connecticut. I acknowledge them as the past, present, and future caretakers of this land. So this evening, we're talking about return of a native, learning from the land. From where and I have been friends for more years than I actually like to count, but they are very, very precious years. And I've been privileged to be part of various iterations um, and drafts of the this book over the years. And, and beginning, in fact, I'm pretty sure the first drafts that I read were actually when you were on this side of the Atlantic from, if I'm, if I'm correct. But I'm incredibly excited to see it now in its actual sort of brilliant fulfillment. Um, it is an extraordinary experience to read. And I hope you will get a taste of that um, as we discuss the book this evening. So I think if I'm correct, Ron, you're actually going to start by introducing the book with a, a short reading. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Hazel. Thank you for your introduction and thank you for being here or being there rather. And <laughs> can I say hello to everybody who's made the um, 
made the effort to come. It's really fantastic to know you're there. And thank you very much for your support. So Hazel's right. This book began in, actually began in, as an idea in the late 90s. It's taken all this time to come out into the world. It's rested for a while. It's had phases of attention and phases of um, forgetting, can I say, and phases of agony as well, um, particularly at the beginning. But I'm very happy to be here talking about it now, and I'd like to thank Repeater very much for publishing it, Eric Goddard for taking it on, to Josh Turner for uh, working on the production, and Ellie Potts and Mike Watson, who's now left, and Vicky Hartley for working on the publicity. So thanks to you all. And um, this is like two, two pages of acknowledgements, thanking everybody who's contributed to the book and helped over the past 20 years. And I'd particularly like to thank Cora Kaplan and Colin Lees for their help in the past 18 months in getting this book to the end. So I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit, a snippet, and I just want to, it's, it's right, it's seven, two thirds of the way through in chapter seven. So just to say briefly, um, the return of a native is basically me going back to the place where I was born uh, to see my mother. And I originally, one of the things that was most difficult about this book was that I was going to write about how our village where I grew up when my parents still lived was globalized. What, what happened to it in the last half of the 20th century? And that plan changed because everybody was just so interested in the wretched village. And they would always say, where is it? Where is it? And I said, we well, wouldn't know it. It's tiny. It's in northwest Hampshire. Yeah, but what, what's it called? Anyway, so I moved out of the village and decided to stand in the middle of nowhere uh, in a place. It was actually a crossroads. It was between several villages, hamlets, small towns, you know, places of different scales um, and a larger town, Andover. So there it is, northwest Hampshire, near the town of Andover, in the middle of nowhere. And twice I've given a talk and someone said, oh, I know your village. My parents, my grandparents live there. So who's to say somebody else might know it tonight? Anyhow, the, the book is really um, 10 chapters and each one looks at a different aspect of uh, a different way of looking at the land itself, and it kind of grows incrementally. So you're introduced to the place and a variety of different characters, different histories, different views, different different um, aspects of the political economy, the social life, and its connections to other parts of the world and other kinds of histories, particularly post-colonial histories, but also pre-histories. So the bit I've chosen to read is from a chapter called Women's Business. That's a chapter that's obviously more explicitly about gender in several in several ways. This last bit is is really a is in a section really about the kind of businesses that people are able to start from home. It's after a section on the catastrophe of rural broadband access and the fact that very often in rural areas of, of the UK, it's very hard to access the Internet been a complete disaster. So there's a discussion of that. It's also written during lockdown. The, the, the book is written over, over a year. And at this point, the lockdown has happened. So I'm actually unable to visit. So this is what I'm saying. In possession of a perfectly functional internet connection in lockdown London, it occurs to me to consult Google Maps to see what Pill Heath, which is the name of the place where I'm standing, looks like from above. 
If I can't go there, then at least I can remind myself where it is, geographically speaking. I type in the postcode and find the familiar grey map with white country lanes, the area of outstanding natural beauty, highlighted in a darker shade of green. Switching to satellite view, I zoom in on my mother's house, but it's so fuzzy I can't tell one building from another. It's not like the old aerial photographs they used to sell before satellite imagery was available on this scale. In those, you could see how your home fitted into the surrounding patchwork of land, like the annual school portraits. Small changes could be measured year by year so that the earlier pictures become more valuable, dating as time went by. Taken in the summer when the corn was ripe, the saturated golds and greens of the fields contrasted sharply with red roofs, ochre thatch and dark meandering lines of trees. The most interesting aspect of the pictures that my parents bought was the imprint of machine tracks on earth. Parallel lines scored through the irregularly shaped fields, creating an array of geometric patterns. I wonder when this amateur practice gave way to satellite mapping, not so much a bird's eye view as a panopticon. I look at the fields on satellite view, marvelling at their idiosyncratic shapes. I have no idea when the images of this part of the world were captured, but the southern section of Pill Heath that was ploughed up in 1942 looks remarkably uncultivated. Each field, and it makes sense from this height that they would have individual names and characters, has a different colour with those same deeply scored patterns hinting at hidden depths. When I was 15, I decided that I would become an aerial archaeologist, fascinated by the idea that you could detect traces of ancient civilizations from the air. I didn't discover Hoskins' book, The Making of the English Landscape, until much later, so it took a bit longer to realise that you could read the land like a book if you knew what you were looking for. But now, history aside, all sorts of information about our contemporary culture can be glimpsed from a great height. And unlike the view of the landscape memorised by local travel writers, there's plenty of evidence of people at work, even though the details might be inaccurate. I scroll up the road to Pill Heath, passing a grey symbol in the shape of ma a map pin that says Barks and Bubbles. As I hover over it, a box flashes up showing a picture of the house, which I recognise, and the word pet words pet groomer. That's an example of a small enterprise run from home for sure, and it's barely 200 metres from the Pillheath signpost, thus proving my point. But when I look it up online, the closest business with that name is in Enham over the border. It's also a popular brand in North America. I search for restaurants in the vicinity, and immediately those red pins pop up in clusters around the suburbs of Andover, which are surprisingly close. England's post-colonial underbelly is there for all to see. Cheek modern Indian, Bombay brasserie, Captain's Meze and Fish Bar, Buddha Restaurant. Groceries are predict predictably sparse in the outlying areas, but the village shops in Enham and Hurstbourne Tarrant do not have red pins, which suggests the information might be outdated there too. Looking for hotels brings up an astonishing array of prices and standards. I click on a random image. This map looks like the surface of a muddy pond that's dried out in the sun. The pattern of crack-like marks reminds me of that sense of travelling through England's body moving from artery to vein to capillary to reach your destination. So that is um, towards the end of chapter seven, as I said, and trying to remember what the next bit is. One of the wonderful things about that selection is it really does give us all a taste of the multiple scales on which you work. And I must say, for which I have great admiration, actually, Yvonne, 
So perhaps we could begin by talking about them. I mean, you open, this section opens with a perspective that is very much an aerial view, but also depending on where you stand, when you're standing sometimes at the crossroad, you use that view to really hone in at a very sort of microscopic level, if you like, to hedgerows and plant life. And then you also talk about Hill Heath and its soils and manage to tie the very sort of particularity of ecology also back into a sort of a global network. So can you talk a little bit about the various perspectives that you employ and why thinking about one place needs to be seen from multiple directions, do you think? And multiple distances and times, actually, because you work on a whole series of historical scales. Well, thank you, Hazel. Yes, that's asking that's asking a, a, a question. A dozen questions at once. A number Sorry. of questions, which is like, well, how, yes, how did you do it and why did you do it like that? So the first point I would say is, is about location. So it's absolutely anchored in a particular place. And I think this is important because I'm talking about a lot of things in the book. And I do move around, you know, numerous scales and different perspectives, perspectives and different time periods. So the one constant thing is coming back to the same place. And, the, and, I, and I sort of half explained the reason for choosing that place. Um, but there's a little bit more to say about that. There's something about going back to a place that you know very well, which is a kind of gift, a kind of opportunity. Uh, one of the reasons the book took so long was that when I first decided to do this and I had a grant, so I had to do it, and I went back and I, I hated it. I hated the experience of looking at my place where I grew up as a child with sort of different eyes. I felt very alienated from it. I mean, I didn't live there anymore. I'd left a long time ago. And it was very uncomfortable to be to have to sort of start looking at people as kind of slightly objectively and wondering about where this place fitted in the world. And it just took a long time to appreciate uh, the ways in which uh, actually a longer connection to that place, a longer point of view, and a, and a possibility of accessing its its history and its its position in the world from different angles. Then it became clearer how to kind of um, make a coherent story about it, if that makes sense. So the first thing really is about about location. It's grounding me as the narrator, as the storyteller, in a very particular place, which I which I want the reader to imagine. You know, so it's easy to imagine a crossroads with a signpost. We keep coming back to it, but then there's something about the soil, the particular kind of terrain. It's chalk downlands. Well, I never really thought much about that growing up. It's but it's very chalky and lots of flints. Quite hard, you know, for some kinds of farming to to happen. There's quite a lot of sheep farming around there. There's also arable. Uh, I also had a hunch about why that place was interesting because I had discovered that although it's called a heath, which is interesting, it's always been a field in my lifetime. So well, how can a, field, a heath be a field? So probing into that history a bit more, I found it used to be common land and then it was um, enclosed. Uh, who enclosed it? 
where do they get their money? And then we're off, you know, with this sort of story that's not atypical of land ownership in England. You know, stories of slave plantations in the Caribbean and massive wealth accrued through nefarious ways through the Slave Compensation um, Act after the abolition of slavery in 1833, 1834 in England. There are lots of stories and rich information, really, about how this land came to look how it was. And then, uh, you know, few, a few um, centuries later, the land was actually ploughed up during the Second World War. So there's a number of things about the, the history of that particular land itself that points you back to the past and a past that's very important for today. But then there's the question of farming. And one of the things about, about writing this book is that I just I learned an enormous amount. I mean, I just learned as I went and things happened as I went. And particularly in, you know, having grown up in a farming area, I knew very little about farming. I mean, I actually wasn't interested, but I was, you know, we, we stayed on a farm. My parents were not farmers, but we knew people who farmed. So I did know something about it. I knew about the rhythms, but I'd kind of lost track of what happened to farming, you know, in the second half of the 20th century and up till today. And it's incredibly important, actually, to all of us that we think about farming. It's a, it's a global industry. And yet it also has very important implications for local areas and is very much affected by the conditions of certain areas. So immediately you get drawn into these different scales without really trying. So I would say the politics of location being one, a kind of environmental writing and attentiveness to things that are deeply important and perhaps not always connected. For example, you know, a lot of environmental writing, writing about place, doesn't relate to post to sort of colonial history and to the realities of post-colonial life in the UK now. You know, these things are kept separate. So there was a kind of stitching together of these different scales, different ways of, of looking. And, you know, some of it was literally using my eyes to see, you know, what was growing in the field at that particular time, what birds were passing overhead, well, and ears maybe, eyes and ears. And some of it was about a, a sort of different kind of reading, a kind of archival research in a way. And also, because I'd started the research in 98, I had all these taped interviews, actually on cassette tapes. So I had access to them. And by then, people who I'd spoken to in 98, you know, one of them had been born in 1912, I think, had a whole century to, to think about. And he'd lived, you know, he'd lived till actually had lived till 100. But anyway, lots of different kinds of materials presented themselves. I now have to deal with in terms of books. Is, you know, one of the wonderful gifts of the book is that we too, as, as readers, can learn how to actually think the global within the local or how even to read the local in all sorts of complicated and complex ways, whether it is, in fact, in relation to questions of history um, and colonialism and how that actually should not be separated from histories of ecology or whether it's actually to look, to be able to see with new eyes and to understand and to ask questions about 
the land, how it is being used, how the soil is being nourished or poisoned, how to think about questions of, of ownership and transitions of ownership. The book is, as I said, a great, a great gift in that way. It's not just a, it is an incredibly compelling read. It is beautifully written, I must say that. But it also, it also enables the reader to see with perhaps eyes they didn't even realize they had before. Can I ask you more about the crossroads? The crossroads does, the crossroads, you keep coming back to the crossroads. And it's a really interesting way of sort of transitioning from one part of the book to another. But it's also interesting in that, in a way, a bit like the aerial view, when you're at the crossroads, you're close to home, but you're actually not there. You're not at home. It creates a very interesting distance. And, and throughout the book, you enable us to think in very interesting and very critical ways about what we even mean by these words of sort of, you know, home um, and belonging. You, you're, you're always questioning what these processes are, how we actually relate to the questions of origins. You already said when you returned, you actually felt quite alienated. But you have a very important and fascinating dance to this question of home and belonging. And I wonder, you know, in a world where questions of belonging, or really, I should say, non-belonging, have become completely tied up with these questions of borders and walls and exclusions and keeping out. And those who quote unquote belong are the only ones who can cross those borders um, and walls. And so your very movement around, your return to the crossroads, crossroads, but your movement around the book and the world and the movement in terms of you know, past and present, actually give us a way of being wanderers, not in fact just tied to this one thing called home or even to this one thing called nation. <laughs> well, I think, thank you, Hazel, for what you say. Thank you very much for your words. I, I think obviously that that's, for me, very important what you said, because I really wanted to complicate the sense of, of home and 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 also you know, the genre of place writing is is very, it can be very, by being focused on a particular place, a lot of writing can create whole worlds within very small places, but those small worlds don't necessarily connect up with or speak to other parts of the world. And I'm interested in words like like native and and, and local and words that speak to a kind of scale that often we don't really challenge. So this idea of, of local things that happened, you know, with a certain within a certain locality, I kind of examine that through a number of different ways. Um, you know, one of which is is local planning guidelines and the language of local planning laws. But I think, you know, and then there's like local events that happen, and and there's a sort of there is a sort of framework for understanding local, which is quite porous. I mean, in the 19th century, the Andover Union that governed the workhouses. You know, there's a map that shows it 
it encompassed several villages in the area that I didn't know were connected. It's nothing to do with a county. There's different ways in which locality is constructed. But I like to think of, of, of local, uh, to trouble it more and to think, I mean, this might sound a bit mad, but to think really transnationally, that actually the time for thinking within these small bounded frameworks is over. It's, it's way too late to be thinking like that. We have to be thinking transnationally, I suppose, is one way to think across the boundaries that have been set for us by 18th, 19th, 20th century political frameworks and frameworks of govern governance and local governance. So with the idea of, of native, I, I borrowed the idea of the umbilical cord from a Kenyan writer called Yvonne Awur, who's an amazing writer. And she once referred to, in terms of thinking about the, the kind of ethnic tensions in Kenya, in terms of describing herself, she referred to her umbilical cord being buried in a certain part of the country. And so there's a sort of connection there which you can't disavow, but it doesn't define you for the rest of your life. I, I borrowed that from her and I kind of use that to think about connection. And that, that also is, a, is an idea that, that I, with which I end the book as well, that actually in the end we can't, well, in the beginning as well, we can't actually choose where we're born. And sometimes those early memories of where we're born comes back and, and gets us at the end, you know, if you live that long. But meanwhile, the connections we make between different places are really, really important. And we can make those connections through understanding history better, but also through understanding where our food comes from and why it comes from where it comes and, and numerous other ways as well as to do with sort of co contemporary politics. And that, in a way, is what I, I was trying to, to formulate something which I, I understand as ecological thinking ecological thinking being a way of connecting all the different ways in which we're made by, inhabit and create our environments, when in fact it's not just about humans, it's about all living things within their environments, trying to make connections across different strands. So you were saying about the idea of being at home and being on the crossroads and looking in different ways and not quite having got home yet or having just left home home being the parental home, but actually going to my London home, which is where I feel at home. And I think I use the phrase, I settled in a crevice, thinking of it as being this huge city where I kind of can find a little perch where I feel much more at home there than I do in the sort of fields and small places in, in Hampshire. So anyways, that's, that's, that's another of the frameworks for the book, the kind of... Um, traveling between, you know, the, 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 as the estate agents say, one of the biggest cities on earth and this small insignificant place. So, so then, I, then these characters walk on, you know, these characters walk on, they come into view. They're people who've never been further than the end of their road. There are people who've never been to London. Um, there are people who've come back and there are people who wander. And then at the end, in the last chapter, there's um, a section on a proposal to make a, a, a holding camp for asylum seekers on the A303, which is the main road that comes past Andover. And that connects up a number of different themes in the book. So, again, I did not have to look very far to see where all these different connections and ways of moving um, were happening all around. And it was really important to me to sort of explore the idea of homemaking as something which was a could be practiced anywhere at any time by anyone. So the question of making a home somewhere 
is, I was going to say, actually, that, that when I began writing it, uh, we were in Connecticut and I was trying, we were trying to make a home there while writing about this other home I'd left a long time ago. So the question of home is very, is very central. But after all, ecology is about places in their environments. You know, where do you feel comfortable? Where do you feel at home? Who else is allowed to feel at home there? Who's not allowed to feel at home there? It's really important in how we think about how places are constituted. Absolutely. And who's allowed to thrive at the expense of keeping others out who are not alive? No, Absolutely. Yes. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Could you talk uh, about how you people your world in some more specific ways. There's a series of fascinating characters in the book. You said you sort of rediscovered these taped interviews. It's it's not an ethnography. You really do seamlessly interweave multiple voices into your book. One of them was of a woman who um, has lived in the village a long time. Her name is Sheila. I think if I have it correct, could you talk about how you peopled the world and how also you use them to tell very gendered stories of being in the world? That there's a there's somebody else who's an important character, and that's Frank. But the the worlds of their work are very are very gendered, aren't they? Well, they are. Yes, yeah. so I think that's that's. Um... Frank and Sheila particularly, I think I think I was worried that there'd be too many characters and it would be too hard. I'd have to have a sort of cast list at the beginning. But actually, things sort of settled down after a while. The amazing thing is Sheila appeared in like every chapter without ask, me asking. I mean, she very sadly <laughs> died in 2006, um, you know, I think. And I'd met I didn't really know her so well sort of, you know, when I was younger, but I'd met her of 98, 99, around that period. And she'd, I mean, the first time I went to see her, I didn't have a tape recorder. I was a bit shy about that kind of thing. You know, it seems rude to suddenly say, oh, sorry, can I tape you when you're having a conversation? And in those days, I didn't really know anything about getting permissions and all that kind of stuff that you do, you know, doing academic research. But anyway, so she started talking and I was just like, her jaw was dropping because she, she was born in Finsbury Park, which is where I was from or you know am from am living and it was like how did you get from finsbury park 
which is my place, to this place, this other place. So she came when she was three, and then her life actually told the story. And I, I suppose, I say I had the tapes, but I remembered what was in them. I remembered exactly what was in them because it changed the way I saw this place that I thought was very familiar. And the same with Frank. I had did a long interview with him, which I did, had learned how to use the tape recorder by that time, and walked around with him and saw things through his eyes. And I never forgot that. I sort of carried that with me. And the worlds that they evoked were very gendered. They were stratified by gender. They were different ages. Frank was much older. But it made such a picture that it enabled me to think about the worlds that they inhabited and the kinds of work that people did, which was very gendered. That's why I kind of come back to those two characters again and again. I mean, Sheila really did pop up in lots of different lots of different stories, which is very useful. I mean, she, she you know, she worked as a 15-year-old in the, the one house by the crossroads. She grew up in the same village as me. She went to live in the other village in the parish. She lived in one of the houses that was owned, built by the guy from Lancashire. She in the post office, you know, she did all kinds of things. She was on the parish council. And then she did the computer course with my mother at the end. And, you know, she was just a phenomenal person. And, and she you know, enabled she to tell so many stories. Yes, I mean, she was extraordinary. She wasn't just, um, she was. And and Frank as well. I mean, his experience of being in the sort of emerging poultry industry as well and his, his training as a gardener in the house that my parents would later buy. And it was all this kind of interaction. And I think, you know, before... In the sort of mid 20th century uh, and the period immediately after the war, people didn't expect to travel so much. So people's lives were more bounded in, in a way, particularly working class lives were more bounded within a, a regional geography. And of course, that began to change quite quickly in the 60s and 70s. So I just managed to kind of get them to reflect on a time when things were very life during the, the war, for example, in the 1940s. And the question of whether the class boundaries and barriers kind of slipped because everything mm. changed a sort of emergency and then the aftermath of the first world war as well you know frank was born shortly after that so he had the sort of memory of that but one of the images i think of the gendered worlds of work was was about this question of washing and laundry sheila had a memory of the woman next door being the sort of laundry woman of the village so there was always laundry hanging up but obviously everybody did laundry and everybody hung it up um, when they could and Frank's story was about the roads not being paved when the first cars came along and they liked to drag branches through the village or somehow, it made a picture anyway, drag branches through the village, which kind of produced a lot of dust, which then went on the washing. So to me, that was very symbolic of, the, <laughs> of a kind of gendered view of the world and what was important. <laughs> I know there's yeah. a thing about kids there and whatever, but it, it just made a very strong image for me. And, and I think that... You know, those those questions, are, there's there's a lot of stuff about laundry because I think that's that's another way into thinking about social change yeah. on a scale that cannot be confined to, you know, the English country village. It's like it changed everything, you know, the abundance of cloth or or the, the kinds of washing powders we, people used or electricity and washing machines and, and, and advertising and women's roles yeah. and domesticity and right. I mean right. yeah I, I absolutely agree with you about laundry so you've mentioned how Sheila keeps appearing and and the crossroads keep appearing but also the festival of the Royal Festival of Britain in 1951 am I right 
Um, yes. It's also another recurring, I don't want to say motif, occasion that structures the book. What, why was the Festival of Britain an important event for you to which you needed to return throughout the book? How does it sort of mark the different stages of the book? Well, that's that's a good question, too. I think time. I'm fascinated by time and the way that time structures our sense of human agency, both in the past and the future. So there's there's a lot about archaeology and new archaeological thinking. There's a lot about, you know, artificial intelligence and new technologies and prognoses for future diets or future ways of living. So, you know, if we can, either end. But the book is very tightly written within a calendar year. It's actually 13 months. Uh, I read something that the, the Korean-German philosopher Byung-Chul Han said the other day about time being a really important structuring device because now with, you know, when you do research online and everything, there's a sort of, you can get lost in time in terms of the relativity of time, things happening. And actually it's very important to keep a sense of how much it governs Everything that so so the so as I said the book is written within a calendar year which takes us through not just the, the weather and and things happening but a sense of a pattern so there's a pattern of seasons and I learned fairly recently that the word for that is phonology and phonology is an incredibly important scientific tool for thinking about you know the impacts of climate change for example measuring things according to you know when they've happened before certain times of the year so people always go on about oh you know snowdrops are appearing three weeks before they should or did or you know ought to um so we think of those things all the time but actually they're, they're, that it relates to a kind of scientific way of understanding the world in relation to time and seasons and obviously that didn't just start now that started way back in the in, in terms of how i found it in in um sort of natural history magazines in the, in the 20th century the early 20th, early 20th, 20th century. So in addition to the sense of, of, of sort of spatial references and transnational global thinking and, and very local, there's also a question of time, a question of it being late, a question of it you know, not knowing how much time we had and time of the year as well. Again, it's a structuring device, but it's also absolutely crucial to thinking about what's actually happening now you know, how we think about now. Could I turn to a question from the audience? Yes, please. Okay. So there's a question here from um, Mandy Rose, and she asks, or she says, you've suggested that it took a long time to develop the radical interdisciplinary form of the final book. And she asks, are there authors and works that were an important or were important reference points in helping you shape it as you were. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, there are lots of them, lots and lots. I, and as I say, I found new people. I tried, you know, hear about somebody, I'd find it, read a few pages and think, oh, I see, and then not read anymore. I would, you know, go back to old things and think about them again and again. It's it's I, it's a sort of magpie approach, really. I mean, I feel like a magpie because I'm taking so many things from different people. 
So one one set of inspirations, for example, is from the guys who do monthly review press, who do all seem to be guys, actually. John Bellamy Foster and um, Rob Wallace. You know, there's a whole way of thinking about, for example, the, the, the section on on fertilizers and uh, the discussion of what, what they term the metabolic rift. There's a whole area there, a way of thinking about a sort of material history, um, particularly in relation to, to agriculture. And then there's writers like Rob Nixon, who's written a lot about sort of post-colonial environmentalism. And then there's a whole feminist literature. Well, I say there's a whole feminist literature, and I can't think of any, but obviously there are. And then there's, you know, different... Um, there are lots of different pockets of writers which I tend to have read across to produce this. And I think it's that sense of being in, in, in conversation and being inspired by a number of different writers writing across different disciplines. I mean, as I've got more and more distance from academic sort of teaching myself and the obligation to think within a sort of disciplinary, you know, sociological framework, I've been more and more sort of curious about why things are kept separate. And, and convinced of the need to question why things are kept separate and to sort of ditch the idea that we just approach these things through a disciplinary strand. And that's, I mean, that's always been true in a way of gender studies, that you have to think across different disciplinary barriers. So it's just a continuation of that, really. And in the early years of both of us working on that, on our books, we were also part of those conversations in terms of gender oh, studies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Women's writing and, and taking on or centering the whole sort of post-colonial question, um, too, in, in our work. And I certainly learned from you uh, and from the, from the drafts of what I was reading for what I was writing. Extraordinary moment of exchange. Yes. And so, I mean, the, you know, writing of June Jordan, for example, Adrian Rich and Bell Hooks, and, mm. you know, using family history, particularly the knots in family history, the things that are difficult, and trying to work out how that connected across generationally, you know, in terms of their formation. Thinking from those things. And also you know, thinking situating in families in, in, in a historical sense, as historical subjects, right? Not just in the personal sense, but in the yeah, political absolutely. sense. Yes, and, I, and then I think, you know, that becomes harder to do when you're sort of you know officially teaching sociology or whatever it is some people don't don't stop doing that but it's it becomes it becomes harder to do you have other reference points and other ways you know to do with um how you approach empirical research for example you know how you do interviews and all that kind of that that kind of thing so sort of have to so unlearning that becomes important or, or sort of skirting around that you know not to say it's not important or necessary in some context but just to say that it doesn't I, I'm much happier to get back to some of those earlier ways of thinking and talking and writing um, that can also connect us across different, many different kinds of places and experiences and backgrounds. So there's a question here from uh, Tarek. Following up on the magpie comment, I love the way he says the book slips between and thus reimagines genres, place writing, nature writing, countryside writing, post-colonial history, geography, British studies. And so he says, where would you want to see the book placed in a bookshop or library and why? Oh, gosh, that, that's a horrible question. And once I met somebody else's agent when I was doing the first version, which I did finish, actually, by the way, but couldn't get published. 
she said, where would you want to see it in the bookshop? And I was like, I don't know, somewhere, you know. And it was like, in those days, it was either history or not even nature. There wasn't even a nature section in 2005. Weirdly, it just wasn't a thing. Nature writing hadn't really happened. And I went into a bookshop locally the other day, and I was under Sustainable Living, the new one. And I went into another bookshop um, in Muswell Hill in North London, and they had um, science, history. I think they may have had nature, black interest, and that was it. And then there was the table by the door with a kind of hodgepodge. And I suppose I'd rather be on the table and just let people decide for themselves. But it was like there wasn't a category where it could go. So I think, um, you know, we need new categories. Ecology would suit me fine. But then, you know, ecology is often understood to be like environmentalism. You know, again, we're back to nature again. So I think, you know, one of the things I want to do is write history differently. So it is history, but it's not just history because it's also about the future. But I think, you know, bookshops have to sell books. So sustainable living is probably quite sweet, although because I'm W, I was at the bottom of the pile. I was right at the bottom on near the floor. I didn't like that very much. I was on a table in a bookshop in Pittsburgh, and they were, that was with abolitionists. And I was next to a book about war, and that was good. But that was on the table again, so it wasn't under a particular category. I think you're absolutely right about we need new categories. I actually have a story about the London Review Books bookshop. So when, when Imperial Intimacies came out, it wasn't so much about where I wanted it. I knew where I didn't want the book, which was in memoir. So I went into the London Review Bookshop and there on the table, there were all these books about Black Britain and Black Europe and the Caribbean. And mine wasn't there. So I ran downstairs and, of course, there it was under memoir. So I actually yes. took the copy of the book and ran upstairs and put it in the middle. Yeah. Somewhere else. <laughs> but this sort of categorization is actually it's actually really important because there's a way in which you know, writing like we write and writing like you write, you're pushing um, all the boundaries. And it's important, I think, that bookstores think very seriously, actually, about about that, about the potential of the boundary breaking um, of, of the books that they have. Um, because otherwise, people who may be interested are not going to find them, you know, when it's just sort of one formal category that they may not be interested in. Somebody writes here, oh, Simon Partridge, Ron, you're reminding me of Ronald Fraser's In Search of a Past. Are you familiar? Thank you, Simon. Actually, I haven't read that for a while. I, I bought it about um, 20 years ago and I was really fascinated by it. And it was absolutely the kind of book I didn't want to write. The idea of going back to a place as I remember it. Um, where he'd grown up and it was it was it was exploring his family history but it was more about him and I think that's where I I kind of was as I say I was was aware of it and really glad that I knew of its existence and thought it was a very important book but I sort of steered away from it partly because I'm from a big family and didn't really want to write about my own family and partly because yeah I didn't really want the book to be about me as such you know, it's it's absolutely not a memoir. It's a different way of using one's own experience. And that may be to do the influence of feminism. But I but I think it was a great book. I mean, in a way, I wanted 
booked a bit bit more like what a carver, you know. So you've got poultry farming, all the ridiculous stuff around the different aspects of post-war Britain in different chapters, you know, lived through real people. So there's an aspect of memoir I'm looking back, but it's not in the end about me personally. It's not about my life. It's, it's difficult, that, isn't it? Because in your book, Hazel, is very much about you doing the exploration and it's about your parents. So it is actually quite intimate, you know, it, it, as it says in the title. I didn't feel I could do that and I didn't really want to. It wasn't what I was trying to do, even though I was well, placing my own parents in a sort of history right. of, of colonial, post-colonial transformation. Although like you, you, I needed to have a distance, though. I needed to examine yeah. them as, as, as people who were historical subjects, who were constructed in particular ways. And yes. what I learned from you, by particular, you know, by particular places. So it, it was it, like what you did. It was, it was troubling that sort of sense that somehow, you know, you can just you come from a family and you don't actually have to question, you know, how they were actually sort of constructed and all those different um, relations. So there's a, actually there's a rather different question here from Waylon Smithers. <laughs> and Waylon asks, where is Brexit in your book? Brexit runs all the way through. It runs all the way through. I mean, in a way, it's a subtext. In a way, it's a subtext. There's, there's like, even at the, the micro level of the parish, it's registered, but it's not in a, in a sociological way. I talk about a fault line that runs through people's bedrooms, through people's houses, and through between houses. I was thinking of the, the, the Sardinian artist Maria Lai was asked in her later years, was asked to come back to her home, hometown in Sardinia to do work around the sort of, um, divisions that had happened in the town and she she literally got a big piece of blue thread and she threaded it through people's houses but you could opt out and not have this blue thread going through your house and I sort of feel that Brexit I mean across the country has done something like this however in terms of it's so there's a, a micro effect which you know I anecdotally heard you know and knew about and then used as a sort of symbolic way of thinking about divisions and fractures within British society as a whole and its implications for farming, for example, attitudes to you know, immigrants, to others, to asylum seekers and so on and so forth. So it's a kind of thread that goes through that is not always named and, and identified. That's where it is. And, and of course, as I was writing, there were various stages of actually leaving and, and, and the implications becoming clearer. And there's no there's no conclusion. There's no bringing it all together. There's a, there is a bit of a discussion about the, the, the MP for Andover is a very uh, hit malt house and he's very sort of Brexity sort of up there with Boris Johnson. So he's, um, you know, any chance to name him is taken. Um, there's a sort of brief discussion of uh, the geographer Danny Dawling's point about he sort of wrote an article saying that people in Hampshire were actually responsible for Brexit because he was trying to draw attention to the statistics in particular parts of country outside um, in, in rural areas. I slightly sort of take issue with that because actually the statistics are, you know, pretty much 54 versus uh, 49. You know, they're not, I can't do the maths, but I mean, they weren't like dramatically pro-Brexit in rural areas, but they were slightly more. So there is an issue, but actually a hell of a lot of people voted to stay as well. So it's not something that one could be very clear about, but I sense the sort of 
that uneasiness. And, you know, I'd met people who said, I voted for it, but I don't really know, you know, sort of uh, loyalty to tribe, you know, to I've always voted conservative. And well, I think they said it was a good thing, so I should go along with it. But was it the right thing to do? I don't really know that kind of thing. You find so much in that sort of area where there is an older population, one that's more traditionally loyal to the Conservative Party, you know, certainly wouldn't have gone anywhere near Jeremy Corbyn. So uh, Rebecca Choi would love to hear more about how you invite authorship through your interviews. She asks, do you consider your cassette tapes as an archive or source of oral history? Or as what Nisa Chow calls oral history as spontaneous literature? Hmm. Well, I consider them very precious. Uh, and I should say that around the time that I was collecting those interviews, and that's kind of awkward because they're like friends of my parents and, you know, it wasn't like strangers, people I had connections with, and I felt sort of um, even strange about asking them to talk to me in some cases. At the same time, there was somebody in the parish who was a public, worked for a publisher, and she took on the job of making a book. It was paid for by some very wealthy people in, in the village, in the parish, uh, a book about the three villages using oral history backed up by research. Presumably she was able to pay a researcher to do it. So, And it was happening alongside me collecting those cassette tapes. The book that they produced on time in 2000 was an incredible source of information. It just is an oral history. It corroborates and expands on some of the things that I'd found. It's, in, it, you know, it's much larger. It has a lot of the background history. It was incredibly useful, a useful resource for me. Um, a lot of conversations and reflections. But it wasn't quite as precious as my own tapes in which um, there's my voice asking questions as well. So I, I'm not quite sure, Rebecca, I think, what what you're asking me. But I think that that is more of an archive. archive. I think it's it's something that I will keep, and I've got the transcripts as well, and it's something... It's a kind of layer to be discovered by someone else. I don't think they would work on their own uh, as conversations. But I think that oral memory that is collected in this book and which is properly edited and put together, like so many other oral histories of you know, rural, rural life anywhere, anywhere, really, not just in English, is incredibly valuable. It's incredibly valuable as it captures something so... Fleeting. That's an interesting question. So we're, we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll sort of abbreviate the next question. But basically, it's about the genre of creative nonfiction, which he's arguing both our books could be included in. It's not so much a category as a genre style, but merely really maybe a useful way to introduce new audiences to some of the thing. And I think Robert wants us to respond to the question of the genre of creative nonfiction. Would you, would you categorise return of a native as creative nonfiction? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy with that. Oh, yours is. Yeah. I think. Um, I mean, if we're talking about categories to sell, then then absolutely, I think it is a category. I think I had this problem with Beyond the Pale in 40 years ago when it came out that it what it was and what it wasn't and where it sat and what it was doing and. 
um, it just seems to follow me around. And um, I kind of feel like maybe, you know, I know I, I know it's an important question for, you know, it's not not that it's not important and I, I don't want to think about it because um, creative nonfiction is, is fine, you know. I mean, it's not, it's, it, it is, it's nonfiction. Of course it's nonfiction and it's creative. It's the sense of sign that it's not it's made up. If it's beautifully written. It's not made up. <laughs> and very creatively, you know, reimagined as, as a world. But um, we're actually over time. So um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, and thank you most of all to Vron for writing an absolutely path-breaking and boundary-defining book, or boundary-defying book. So thank you, Vron. Thank you, Hazel. And thank you so much to everybody. And obviously, you know, it's just annoying we can't all be together. And I really appreciate you all coming. And then um, if we were together, then Hazel wouldn't be able to be there. So thank you very, very much. And thank you to the people at LRB Books. And thank you very much for your questions, and, and especially those who didn't answer them, ask them, as well as those who did. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.